0: Good evening, I'm Uma Paganapke Pagan and joining me today on Bookmark, I've got a very special guest, the proprietor over at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue, Fong Min Han. Hello, hello folks. Welcome to the show. The last time I had you on, it was with your wife Elaine and you both of you were selling your bookshop. That's right. Uh, and now today we're um, selling a book, I suppose. We are, we are. I was thinking about uh, who I should get to um, read a 700-page Haruki Murakami book, which was giving me carpal tunnel syndrome, because the ARC, the advanced reader's copy they sent me, wasn't a digital copy. I think I, I, I think I was quite lucky in that I've got the paperback instead. I don't think that makes a difference. It does, it
1: does. It really does. <laughs> <is. laughs>
0: If you drop it on your face when you're reading it in bed, it doesn't break your nose. It is a dense, dense book, right? It is 700 pages. It is called Killing Commendatore. It was released about a year ago in Japan, but it's taken a while to get translated. His books usually end up being on about a one-year delay before it hits uh, European and Western markets or English markets. And understandably so, because this is, I would think, a complex project to translate. But before we get into Killing Commendatore, let's talk about Murakami first. Now, Minhan, you are a latecomer to the world of Murakami.
1: Yeah, I mean, Mur- Murakami has been writing for so long. And um, I think I probably read Kafka on the Shore 20 years ago. I think that's when it came out, right? When, when oh, 15? Out? Yeah, 15 around, years around ago. There, yeah. Uh, When I was a much younger man and enjoyed it very much. But then I made a fatal mistake of picking up 1Q84 after that. I couldn't get past page 20 on 1Q84 and decided that Murakami was just way too overrated. I'm never going back to him again. And then the unthinkable happened. I opened a bookshop, right? (laughs) I opened a a bookshop and then... And and, then all of these fanboys and fangirls come in and and they're all like... Where's your Murakami? No, no, I was resisting them. I was resisting them. But then what happened was that um, a gentleman wanted to do a Murakami jazz performance in my shop. That's right. And I thought, you know what, this is too good of an opportunity to pass up. So I basically binge read through about three or four Murakami books in a period of a month. Um, I and re- you were back on board. I was. You know, I, uh, I really sort of kicked myself for missing out on Murakami goodness all these years.
0: So can I ask you, what was the book that...
1: Turned you. You know what? The very first one I picked up, I think it was South of the Border, West of the Sun. Mine too. You know, I mean, I, I, when I started the book, I, I was full of, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I, I, I think just like, of contempt, just you just know? like contempt. You just like impress me. Yeah, exactly. I, I, th- I think I started the book with contempt, and it's like indignation that I had to read this. But the next thing I knew, I was about halfway through the book. It's like, you know what? It's, it's, it's different. It's, it's quite compelling. I'm not really sure what it's about. And finally, when it finished, you know, I, I really have to Google to see what pe- how people thought the book ended, because the book, the book ends on a cliffhanger, right? Like a
0: lot of his books. <laughs> they end on oh cliffhangers, they end on question marks. <laughs> The thing about Murakami, so I am an unabashed Murakami fan. I enjoyed 1Q84, 1984 as well, but also because I like it when he dabbles in metaphysics and science fiction, right? And he does that a lot because he's one of the few authors that kind of merges genres quite seamlessly. I remember reading Hardball Wonderland at the End of the World, and that is a metaphysical science fiction storyline, which is kind of split up. Chapter by chapter. So one chapter is in a fantasy world, one chapter is in the real world. And that was one of my earliest murakamis, and I had no idea what was going on.
1: You know, say, same here, but I really enjoyed it once I figured out what what was going on. Right. I mean and, and of course the thing is, is that I one thing I like about Murakami is that he doesn't really make you work for the understanding, at least on on a surface surface level, all that much. As if you stick with a book, if you go through it in about three or four chapters, suddenly a light bulb goes on, and he goes, This is what's going on. It's not going to be enough to understand a book completely, but it's enough for you to keep going.
0: But it's also literature that keeps you challenged, which I think is something he sets out to do. And I think it's something he successfully does. The other one of his books, other than South of the Border, West of the Sun, that kind of turned me was Sputnik Sweetheart. And ironically, both of those books are relatively straightforward. They have a sort of question mark at the end. Sputnik Sweetheart has a little bit of a supernatural, ghostly element going on, but for the most part, it is kind of rooted in reality, as opposed to, say, Wild Sheep Chase or Hardball Wonderland at the End of the World, or even IQ84, 1984. And what I really enjoyed about Sputnik Sweetheart was how well he takes you into the brain of the characters. Well, one thing that's always... that I've always
1: wanted Uma, and I'm not sure if this is the right place to discuss it, but do you think, or do I think, that Murakami gets away with a lot because he is Japanese? There is that. Yes, really... of course, because they're all weird. <laughs> well, no, but that's the thing. Are we, are we perpetuating this? Uh, I mean, if, if Murakami's themes were applied to an English novelist, I mean, would I be as compelled to... I mean, would I find it as fascinating or would I think that this is a bit strange? You know? No, you would,
0: 100%. When I watch Japanese anime... When I watch Japanese films, they get away with so much more with zero exposition. They will throw in fantastical elements. They will throw in folklore and mythology, and we just take it as a given. You know why? We Asians are so exotic, <laughs> so it's just part of our culture and heritage, right? You know, I, I agree with. I, I do agree with you. I, I really do. Suddenly, think, there's yeah. like a time traveling monkey, and we're okay with it. <laughs>
1: Well, which reminds me of that big Nobel Prize debate between Murakami and Ishiguro last year, right? Yeah. Personally, I was in Camp Ishiguro, but now that I have read more Murakami, I'm sort of undecided. If I had to go back in time, you know, a year, year and a half ago to make a decision all over again, would I have been in Camp Ishiguro or Camp Murakami? Probably still Ishiguro, only in terms of,
0: in terms of structure and stuff, but Murakami makes a very strong argument. But, 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 that being said... Murakami is very unlike other Japanese authors. I agree. And I think it's because of his deep affection for America. Um, He tries his hardest to translate lots of great American classics from uh, English to Japanese. He's a translator on the side. And this book, Killing Commendatore, uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit, actually is part of this long-held fascination he's had with Fitzgerald, right? And The Great Gatsby in particular. But when you read his work... And the references he makes, and even the way he writes, it feels like an American novelist, not like your typical Japanese novelist.
1: I think he has come under criticism from some from, from the Japanese side, yes. claiming that he's not Japanese enough. Enough, right? Right. I'm not. I'm not really sure what that means. And I think he sort of alludes to that a little bit in *Killing Common itself when he's when he's arguing what Japanese paintings were versus non Japanese paintings. That's a, that was a really
0: interesting set piece. Uh, you should, really should go in and read that again. Before we talk about the new <laughs> book, I think it's important to note that if you haven't read *A Murakami*. This is probably not the best entry point. You know, I I'm not sure about that. Really? Huh? You know, I
1: I've actually. First of all, it's 700 pages, man. <laughs> it is 700, but it didn't feel like 700 pages when I first saw the book. And and I am very psychologically affected by the thickness <laughs> of books. You know, I mean, if it's if it's if it's more than 400 pages, I despair. And when I despair, I can't bring myself to open the front page. I had to do this. I read it, and and I finished it. I finished it in like five sittings, which, yeah. is, which is really, really good uh, as far as my pacing is concerned. But the reason that I would say that it might not be a bad introduction to Murakami is because it collects so many of his themes that he uses in all his previous works, right? I could see shades of colorless Tsukuru in it. I could see shades of Heartbolt Wonderland. I could see shades
0: of uh, Kafka on the shore. So do you not think that if someone's coming in blind and they want to attempt Murakami for the first time. Someone came into your store and went, hey, man, I've been hearing a lot about this Murakami chap. What would you recommend? Because I wouldn't recommend this. I would go back to Sputnik Sweetheart or South of the Border because they're like 200 and 300 pages. They're light. They're a little more friendly. You know, I would agree with you, except I actually had that
1: experience, right, where I did have a customer come in and she did want a Murakami to start off with, and I gave her two books. This was before *Commando came out. I gave her *The uh, South of the Border*, *West of the Sun*, and *The Elephant Vanishes*, which is a collection of short stories.
0: A oh, good, good, good collection.
1: And I, yeah, good collection. And I thought that collection of short stories because you know it's 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 a quick read and stuff like that. Uh, she'd be able to digest Murakami a bit faster. You're going to tell me she hated it, right? She did. Be- what? Because the thing is, is that the elephant vanishes, the stories in there, presume you know so much about the way he thinks already, right? So uh, if you, uh, I don't want to spoil the stories for anyone, but the thing is, is that elephant vanishes, that particular story works, because it is an inversion of what he usually does. Yeah, it right? is a
0: play, it is
1: meta-Murakami. Exactly. So because of that, uh, she found south of the border, west of the sun, a lot more manageable than the short stories. Um, I probably wouldn't hesitate to, to to introduce Killing Commendatore, but at the same time that you're right, the thickness of the book does put a lot of people off.
0: All right, let's talk <clears throat> Killing Commendatore. Uh, like we said before, 700 pages. It is his 14th novel, I believe, or published work, I think. I've read all of them, and I went through this phase when I first discovered Murakami, when I was binge-reading Murakami, I'd finished one, got to the bookshop, buy another one. That is not a wise thing to do because <laughs> your brain goes to strange places. Um, with Killing Commendatore, I've not read a Murakami in quite a few years, as in not a full novel. Colorless Sukuru was quite a few years ago. and 2014, I think. 2014, so four years, and he's only had a whole bunch of short stories out. Yeah. And that meant I had to reconfigure my brain to kind of accept this style once again. It felt somewhat jarring for the first two or three chapters because in typical Murakami form, you are in the mind of this nameless narrator. You don't know how trustworthy or flawed this narrator is. You just believe him as he's going along, and it's a little jarring at first. But then you hit about chapter three, chapter four, not too far in, and you finally realize that you're trapped in his mind. And that's something that Murakami pulls off so incredibly well. He fools you. The turn happens so quickly and before you know it, you're completely stuck in this individual's brain and then, and then you're good to go. I think I would agree with you except for the fact that I had, I had been binge reading Murakami over the past <laughs> two months.
1: So, I, 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 it was a very familiar return to Murakami's world for, for myself and what actually really, really caught my attention was the prologue of the book because in most of Murakami's stories, um, it ends on it ends on a question, but the prologue of *Killing Comandatore* seems to suggest to you that there is a little bit more closure in this book than there are in his previous books. So I was really quite eager to, to, to sort of get to that point where it's like, okay, this makes sense to me now. So the moment I plunged into chapter one, two, three, four, it was basically Murakami's universe as I knew it from, from from all the various books I'd recently read.
0: The prologue is a strange, weird dream sequence that doesn't actually get explained until well into the book. And so, it's quite unusual, actually, because he doesn't necessarily begin in this way in a lot of his novels. No, it doesn't. So that's why I think you're right. It is, it is quite fascinating, because that took me me aback. I didn't know what it was. Because you jump into chapter one, and then you're like, well, what was that? And then you, you keep reading, and you're like, no, 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 wait, what was that? <laughs> it takes a while for it to kick in, right? That being, said, that being said, there has been a lot of chatter about how this book, I mean, this magnum opus that he's written, was him finally tackling his albatross, his white whale, which is Fitzgerald and the Great Gatsby. Yeah. And the book borrows heavily from the structure of The Great Gatsby, which is a very slim volume, mind you. And and I think that therein lies the genius of Fitzgerald, the kind of story and structure and plot that he derives from so few pages. The characters that he develops is tremendous. I'm not saying Murakami is a slack for doing it in 700 pages. I'm just saying that this is a real weight of an homage. I would agree with you, but although I, I do sort of have to add the
1: caveat that I am one of—I belong in a camp of people who think that the great Gatsby is probably one of the most overrated novels of <gasps> all time.
0: We need to do another <laughs> show just on that.
1: No, it's—it's. It's, I've had this argument over and over again with my customers, and I'm not sure what I don't get about the book. Maybe it's just the overt Americanism that's oh, that's, that's, it. That's, that's in the
0: book, right? It is um, such an American novel.
1: And some of the jargon he uses, the old sport this, old sport that. So, I think in that respect, when I was reading Murakami's homage to The Great Gatsby, the fact that he's just borrowing the shadow of the book or and, and some of the, the the spine, right? Some of the main the main themes, um, I actually found it a lot more palatable than the original Great Gatsby.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, the shadow and the structure is there. Uh, Nick Carraway's character has a surrogate in our nameless narrator. And then, of course, we also have a Gatsby-esque character who plays his neighbor. So the story is, I, I don't know how to actually distill the story for you, except to say that the main character, this narrator, is mm-hmm. this guy, he's a painter for hire who does portraits. His wife leaves him and he goes on a downward spiral. He goes off on this seemingly endless road trip to discover himself. And then when he comes back, when he finally goes, okay, it's time for me to return, he ends up staying at a friend's father's house, which is up in the mountains. It's this kind of reclusive little hole. And the father is a world-famous painter. And that's where he comes upon a painting, Killing Commendatore, of the title. And this neighbor, who Mm. is this weird, strange, Gatsby-esque tech mogul, We'll give her we'll a name. It's, it's Manchiki. Manchiki is yeah. the name of the neighbor. And there's about 20 narrative threads that yes. kick off from that point. There really are.
1: And also the flashbacks to his
0: childhood with his sister. Uh, there's flashbacks to his long-ass
1: road trip right after his wife leaves him. The neighbor's daughter. The neighbor's daughter. I mean, there are all these things going on at the same time. And they, they seem like very, very disparate scenes, very disparate threads. And you don't see how they're ever going to... To, to, to be brought together. I'm not sure if he successfully does it, to be honest. I was just going to say, I don't think he actually does bring it together,
0: <laughs> but I don't
1: mind. I don't mind either. I don't mind either. But when I read a novel, though, I mean, I, I, I this might be a bit, I might be a bit of a philistine for saying this, but (laughs) I'd like to have
0: a point to my novels. And you can ask this question of every Murakami novel. You can
1: ask this question of every... You're absolutely right. What's the point of this book? But the thing is is that with some of his previous novels, even though I couldn't really give... uh, You couldn't really give a proper answer to what the point of the book was, I had a suspicion as to this was what the book was about. And similarly with Commendatory as well, I mean, if you read a lot between the lines, you find that maybe this is really a story about setting ideas free and seeing what happens as they manifest to the various, pe- uh, various people around, around you. Maybe that's just one thing that, that, that I sort of picked up at the end.
0: I can buy that. I like this idea of setting ideas free. The only thing is, if you're not a Murakami fan, mm. then mm-hmm. this may seem somewhat aimless to you. Because it's Murakami setting his ideas free. And if you're one of those readers that requires resolution, if you're one of those readers that requires some sort of point, like you alluded to, then you're going to be very, very upset at the end of this novel after you've dedicated 700 pages of your life to it.
1: I'm just going to take out my copy of Murakami just to show Uma just how many dog ears I have in it because these are all the cross-references that I've made throughout the entire book. And wow. I was just trying to make sure that I didn't lose the thread. Every time he made a reference to something else that sort of So you through, made a mark? I made a mark, right? So, so, so there's dog ears throughout the entire book. I mean I don't know. I mean I, I really need to read it again. I'm not sure if I will, but I really need to read it again to really get a good sense of, of what's going on.
0: I wasn't kidding about the couple tunnel. I mean I was lying in bed <laughs> and trying to read it and it's really, really heavy and the pages are really thin and it feels dense.
1: Oh did you know that in the Japanese and Chinese this was actually split into two volumes? So I don't think that know would why... have been a good idea. I don't know why in English they actually put it together into one. The first part is called The Idea Made Visible and mm-hmm. the second part is The Shifting Metaphor. And the second part really goes into a lot of this like philosophy of language stuff about metaphors and ideas and double metaphors. And... and the book kind of ends on a double metaphor as well. I'm not sure what a double metaphor is, Uma. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent a lot of time I actually did some research onto this and I looked it up on Google and the closest thing to come uh, that 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 comes to a definition for a double metaphor was a double entendre so Oh, that doesn't work with this, though. <laughs> no, it doesn't. The way I see it, and, and again, I could be reading too far too much into this because Murakami warns you so much about the dangers of double metaphors in a book. And if we see the book itself as a metaphor, and some of the characters in there clearly are metaphors. Literally, they are metaphors. Yeah. Right. So basically, perhaps Murakami is saying, take this literally. Don't take this as a metaphor for something else. Read it as I have written it, and this is what I really mean. Set the ideas free, kill the ideas, et cetera, et cetera. It's all there.
0: Which I would, see, I would agree with you, but that's not what he ever does. I know. And that's the problem, (laughs) right? Because in everything else that he does, you are not supposed to read it literally. Even when he tells you to. In a wild sheep chase, you are led to believe that this metaphysical sheep or this thing that's possessing sheep and humans or sh- humans in sheep form or the other way around. It's meant to be literal because it's meant to be real. I, I
1: would really like to get into this a lot more, but I don't i don't want to spoil the book for your listeners out there. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I,
0: I, Also, I think it's impossible to spoil yeah. a Murakami book, right? Because there is so much that's going on. Distilling the plot alone would take so long, let alone trying to give you some sort of twist that's in the book. And there are quite a few twists. There are quite a few surprises. And I know we've been talking a lot about the philosophy of the book and his method of writing, but I have to go back to the point that it's actually a very compelling story as well. These are characters that you want to spend time with. Um, the unnamed narrator, the Gatsby-esque neighbor, the side characters, his good friend, his wife, they're all quite fascinating, even though they're all being seen through this one individual's perspective.
1: Oh, I absolutely agree. And and. The... There's a flavor of a mystery and a bit of a thriller as well throughout the book, which just keeps you turning the pages. So it's it's very pacey in that regard. Yes, and uh, I I I absolutely would recommend it to a new Murakami reader just for that reason alone.
0: I know I, I think I would recommend this book um, to anyone, if only because, and this is a big claim, but I think I think he's outdone himself with this one. I think with Colorless Sakura, it was all right. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't spectacular. No, this one has ambition. Exactly. You know, this is this is a this is an epic. And you know it has ambition because as soon as he started to model something after FitzGerald something he's been obsessing over for most of his adult life, you know he's going to make it count, and I think he does. The writing's great, the plotting is fantastic. Yes, it's a bit big, but I think it's worth your time. Yes,
1: I absolutely agree. Fitzgerald, Alice in Wonderland, Bluebeard, it's all in here.
0: Actually, it's all in there, right? (laughs) This weekend on Saturday, we're actually going to be talking in a lot more detail about this book. Uh, We're going to be having a live session at your bookshop. Yes, we are. On the 13th. At 5 p.m. That's right. How do people come? Okay, well, you can
1: actually get a ticket online. Uh, this is actually a paid event, but we will reimburse you the cost of a ticket if you buy a book from us. And you can actually get a little bit more detail about this event from our website, litbooks.com.my. One more thing in addition to the two of us, we're actually going to have Tae Chersiang talking about the book with us. Uh, for those of you who don't know him, he is the band leader for WVC, which is a critically acclaimed and award-winning jazz band here in Malaysia. So why are we having a jazz guy come talk about Murakami? Because he is a Murakami superfan. He is obsessed. He is the one who suggested <laughs> that you do that jazz concert. That's right. And he's read all the Murakami, both in Chinese and in English.
0: Correct. Right. And, and I think that would be cool, because yeah. I've never spoken to anyone or I've never had anyone on the show who's actually read him in another language other than Japanese or English. And I would love to know what it sounds like in those languages as well and what is kept and what is lost. Come chat to us at Lit Books in Tropicana Avenue, 13th of this month that's this Saturday 5pm you can log on to get tickets it's 15 ringgit and you get 20 ringgit off the book plus goodies that's right everyone who comes, who buys a
1: ticket will be entered into a drawing and you can win more books and gift vouchers bargain
0: sounds great in the meantime go check out Killing Commendatore and let us know your thoughts on Murakami are you a Murakami fan what was your first Murakami book you can tweet me I'm on at Umapagan you can also tweet Lit Books at my Lit Books. All right. And we will definitely get this conversation going on Twitter. This is Bookmark. You're listening to BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to BFM.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.